today we're going to finish the next five because well, we have to we have to finish the next five like we, <laughs> we have to move on to stuff next week um i also just want to let you guys know that uh, for those of you who are interested if you would like to keep the 29th of february open in the afternoon uh we're baptizing rachel Heck yeah. at deanna's pool at her apartment and we want to say <laughs> thank you so much for offering the pool like you're an answer to prayer i don't think you understand i kept telling rachel we will get it we will give a pool we will get a pool we will get a pool and then i'll admit i may have doubted and started looking at the price of portable baptismal pools and then i saw five thousand dollars i was like yeah, yeah about that so um you guys are all welcome to come and witness it. Uh, she was not inviting anyone else, right? As far as I know uh, at this point. I might invite like some friends. Okay, great. That would be very nice for us to be there and support her in this big moment in her life. So uh, I'll put more details closer to the time. But I just wanted to warn you guys two weeks in advance. If you're not going to come, and if you're coming, please pray for warm weather like today or warmer that would be great today was great it's gonna be like 20. Yeah. <laughs> sorry in uh, jesus name uh, wow also, really uh, speaking the weather oh you have little face yeah <laughs> i'm not saying it can't happen i'm just saying at this point it's I'm... a joke <laughs> <laughs> Before you guys got here, we had a whole discussion on what the meaning of joke is. <laughs> what's a joke and what's a lie? Okay. Gosh, we really need editing software. Yeah. For all eternity, everyone will know what you did tonight. <laughs> Whatever. You don't scare me. <laughs> all right so um we spoke about the so far five of the truths that have to do with when you're truly saved how to identify that what are the things you can use to say "Mm, i'm not so sure if i'm saved so compare yourself to these and think okay maybe i am or maybe these truths aren't as evident in my life until i need to address that with god um also things that are promised to you from the Father so that you can claim once you're saved. So we've gone through five and we'll be doing, hopefully, God willing, the next five tonight. All right, so truth number six on page eight. Uh, Eric's going to do some reading tonight. So go ahead. Second Peter 1, 4. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That though these, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The old nature that every one of us has is corrupt. Unfortunately, however, it basically dominates the people of this world. When Jesus comes to live in us he gives us a new nature his nature when we receive the new nature certain things happen to us yeah uh also i'm skipping 
introductions tonight to save time because uh, it's five truths that we have to go through and we've never made it through five so far so <laughs> <laughs> um you'll have to save testimonies for next week too so. all right so <clears throat> this section is going to speak about how there is a change that happens from when before you're saved to after there's a new nature that comes about. You're no longer reaping from a corrupt flesh. You're now reaping from a spirit. Carry on. <clears throat> the things we considered precious diminish in value, and the things that in times past of no consequences to us become extremely important. Certain things we used to revel in, we now come to hate. We no longer want to see injustice, nor hear bad language or filthy jokes, or associate too closely with evil people. Instead, we long to be with children of God. We become aware of God's word and develop a longing to hear from God. Whereas previously we would not enter a church, we now enjoy attending church to meet the fellow <laughs> saints and with the living God because we have received the new nature of Christ. So I went on a mission trip to Zambia. Um, and the people that we went to, we went to like deep in the middle of nowhere. Um, they didn't even have huts. They were just sleeping on the bare ground around a fire. And we had to preach to them, teach them the gospel. They had never seen white people. They had never heard about Jesus. Um, and we went through this because this is like the foundation of our faith. So it's always something that we, it was like our go-to. And, um, obviously because this is the first time they're hearing it, we took it really slow. So we basically did like one truth a day. Um, and they would, we would meet every day for church with the, the natives. Um, and my best friend got to preach on this and I remember it very clearly because she she thought about it in a very creative way because you must understand these people couldn't speak English and so we had to use a translator and some words don't translate well so like if you think about the word nature like in the context that we're talking about it it might not translate at all into their language. So, but now we have an entire section of the study on it. And so she actually took the word very literally, like as in nature outside. And she used that as an illustration. And she said how um, the area we were in was extremely dry and dead. And she was saying how when you were in the world before Christ saved you, if you look around you, this is what represented what your life looked like. All the plants that are in this area, even if they are alive and not dead, they are drawing from a nature that is dead and dry. And so the plants themselves look like that. They're brown, they're skinny, there's a lot of twigs and not a lot of leaves. Um, and so the fruit and the plants represent the nature from which they're drawing sustenance from but then when you live in christ you're drawing from a new nature so then she painted a picture of like 
luscious green gardens where the fruit is plump and everything is super green and there's grass everywhere. Um, and she used that to paint a picture of how when we draw from Christ, there is life, there is beauty. And so it's literally a whole different type of landscape. You're not a beautiful tree planted in a dead landscape. Because if you are, you're still trying to draw water where there's nothing. And you're also not a dead tree planted in a lively landscape. Because a dead tree planted in a beautiful, luscious landscape full of water is going to sprout to life. And so in our lives, the things that we used to draw from, the things that gave us our meaning, our hope, our happiness, our entertainment, those things change. So whereas before, uh, the things that we found funny were crude, crass jokes, ones with tons of swear words in, for example. Now, suddenly, a joke about Moses is funny, whereas before you're just like, I don't, I don't get it. Um, you, you, you find yourself being drawn more towards things that are clean. Whereas before you got your entertainment from shows and you didn't care what they were showing on the screen. Now, even if it's the same storyline, there's a part of your spirit that's just like has an aversion to it because it, it feels dirty. It feels corrupt. It's, it's, it's like a plant that doesn't belong in your garden. You have this lush, beautiful green garden and here's this weed that shouldn't belong here. And so you want to pluck it out. Um, your friends as well. I've spoken to a lot of Christians who say when they become believers, they start to struggle in their friendships because they're surrounded by people who didn't really care about God, who didn't love the things that they now love. And so there's a clash. So once these people were their best friends and now they're getting to a point where they can't even stand to be around those people anymore. Um, carry on. <clears throat> what is actually happening is that we are becoming like the Lord Jesus. His nature has come to reside in us and we are changing on the inside. But it does not take long to realize that inside of us there is not only but it does not take long to realize that inside of us there is not only the nature of Jesus. We soon realize there is another nature in us, our quote-unquote, old nature, or quote-unquote, old man. As it is sometimes called, the old man rears his ugly head very quickly. However, we need to develop the new nature in our lives. We must allow the Lord Jesus to take complete control of us so that the more and more of the new nature shines through us. Unfortunately, at the same time, we could make the opposite choice and satisfy the old nature the decision in terms of which way you go rest with you. So this is a very important point is that when you get saved, your spirit is saved. It's the thing that was dead that is now made alive. It has been regenerated. It is full of the righteousness of Christ. It is holy. It is wonderful. It is pure, but your physical body, your flesh is still exactly the same as it's always been. It is still evil. It still loves the things of this world. Now your soul or your mind, your emotions, they're in between. They can be pulled by one or pulled by the other. So there's two analogies that 
uh, I usually use here. And one is, I think it actually comes from some type of Chinese proverb, but um, there are two dogs. Uh, this man describes that inside him, it feels like there are two dogs that are fighting at each other, uh, biting and scratching and, and each of them wants to dominate, each one wants to win. And so they asked the man, so which one is winning? And he said, the one I feed the most. The same analogy comes with the idea of a train. Imagine a train that has one cart in the middle and then the front part with the chimney and then that same front part but facing the opposite way. So you have two trains with one cart and they're all connected. And this train, let's say each one represents a piece of you. Flesh on the one side, soul in the middle, spirit at the end. Spirit and flesh will always pull in the opposite direction. Your soul will follow on whichever one is leading. So if you're feeding the dog that is the flesh, it's going to win. If you are constantly filling yourself with things of the world, your flesh will win. If you're constantly filling yourself with the things of the spirit, your spirit will become stronger and your spirit will win. A lot of people complain, I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like reading the word. I don't feel God in worship. Um, I've read what you just read, Cassandra, and I still like my worldly friends. I still like those movies that I probably shouldn't watch. I still find those terrible jokes really funny and laugh myself on the floor. Like, I, I, I don't see this change. And that's because you've been letting one side of you win. And so your soul, which is your emotions, has followed it. Whereas if you let your spirit lead, and your spirit deep down wants to read the word, wants to spend time with God, loves to pray. If you let that lead and pull far enough, that train, if it pulls far enough, your soul, your emotions, your mind will follow it. And so you will start to feel those things as well. You won't have this thing anymore of, I have to do something, but I really don't want to do it. And I kind of hate it, but oh, I'm going to do it anyway. If you keep doing something over and over, your emotions and your feelings will follow. And you may even find yourself getting to a point where even your flesh is being pulled by your spirit. And so your flesh becomes less dominant and your flesh doesn't feel those pulls towards evil as much anymore because it's become weak. If you keep starving that dog that is the flesh, it will become so weak that it cannot stand any attack from the spirit. I feel like you need to be really careful with that like mindset though, especially when it comes to your friends because like as, as it relates, especially to new believers, um, the word calls us to be in the world, but not of it. And I don't think, I think there's a right and a wrong way to do it because I think that like a companion of fools, like will suffer harm. Like that's in the Bible. I think, um, it's also true where it talks about as a man, uh, as water reflects a man's face, so does a man's heart reflect man. And you think so much of our personality comes from those around us. I've heard it said before, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Like, you know, we are the sum collection of the people we five, uh, we most often associate with, like the five most people we most often associate with. But I feel like there's an adverse side to, and this is why a lot of people end up feeling turned off by Christians, for sake, to be able to say this person got saved, 
whatever like religious mm-hmm. terms that you want to put on it, and then immediately forsaked all of their friends. And I, don't, I think there's a right and a wrong way to be able to handle that because like, yes, you need to be able to like, you need to handle it with grace. And I think that you should stand firm to like what you believe and be able to speak up for that. But I think there's a loving way to be able to like have those conversations. And I don't know what it is for everyone, but I don't think the conversation is just forsake, forsake, forsake. Because I feel like that you're missing a massive opportunity to be able to minister to a group of people that only you could have ministered to. So to be able to say, how do you, how are you in that situation? And not like of it, like, how do you take that opportunity and not just say, yes, these are the friends that I associated with. And I, I remember drinking with them all the weekend and maybe for a time I need to separate myself from that because that was a, that was a sickness and that was an illness for a really long time. But how do you still take control of that to be able to say, these are still people that you care about. Like you don't see someone walking in the middle of the street and say like, Oh, I'm going to let you keep walking in the middle of the street. Like you find a way to lovingly say that. So like, it's almost like a struggle of the heart to be able to say, how do you, how do you have those conversations without being like, I'm just going to run from all of this. Or is there just a season of time that you're like, I just need to forsake all of this of who I was because otherwise I've seen the adverse side of it. And I did it myself where like I left a lot of friends and then I burnt bridges mm-hmm. by the time, by the time I personally thought like, I need to go back and talk to these people. They didn't want anything to do with me. Like every ministry opportunity I would have had like left. So like yeah. personally scares me to think about like that, like, and maybe just radicals the way to always be, but like, I feel so like you need to be a, cautious. It's with a that. good question. I'm glad you asked it. So here's my response. Jesus definitely was seen hanging around sinners, right? We can all agree that's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Here's my question. Was he ever around them while they were committing sin? I would say no. He hung out with drunkards, liars fornicators, prostitutes, adulterers. But was he with them while they were committing that sin? I would say no. In fact, if sin was committed in front of Jesus, that's when he would address it and rebuke it. So I would say if you're in that season of change where you've just become saved and you have these worldly friends that you still care about and want to lead to Christ, which is good and godly and necessary, I would say your line is this. Still hang out with them, still reach out to them, still talk to them. But you draw a line and say, when they're doing things that are clearly contrary to the word of God, I'm separating myself from that. Mm -hmm. So if they're going to go out on the weekends, party and get drunk, you're not part of that. But hey, do you guys want to come over to my house and hang out and watch the game? Do you guys want to play board games? Do you guys want to go out and go bowling? Like, yeah, hang out with those friends. But when they're committing sin, that's when you separate yourself. And that is a great opportunity to then be a witness and say, I've changed my life. I don't do those things anymore. I love you. I want to hang out with you. I'm not going to go out with you tonight because I know I'm going to be tempted to go back to that lifestyle of drinking, but I would really like to hang out with you. How about tomorrow afternoon we do something together? You know, so separate yourself from the sin, but not the sinner. No, I I think that's awesome. It's just like, I've seen it the adverse side of it before. And I was guilty of it where it's kind of like, well, geez, what do you do now? Because I left on the uh, side of it that I lost a lot of friends. And like, and I don't think that like... I have zero friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make better that's friends. That's what job school does. Um, but I, I think that's a really good point because all of a sudden you can start using it as a ministry option. And like, especially for encouraging others who are in a similar spot. Because ultimately, I think that you end up surrounding yourself around more and more people of like mind and... That, that it, it, it becomes a different scenario. But to be able to still have that ministry opportunity to say like, oh, well, great, let's still hang out because there's that stigma 
with Christianity that still exists, that it's like Christians don't have fun. Yeah, I, um, well, I was actually really lucky when Cassandra and I um, started dating and got married. Was I had, I had Christian friends. I had Christian friends. And so we were on the same page that we believed in Jesus. Um, but after Cassandra and I got married, um, I've probably seen them like one or two times in like three years. And it's not because I like push them away because Cassandra will tell you like, I want to hang out with my friends. I've hit them up and it was just like week after week. And it was just like, but I think they started seeing that I was like going to church all the time. I didn't want to go party out on the, on the weekends anymore, you know? Um, and I, I still wanted to hang out with my friends. Most of my friends just actually just ended up ditching me because of it, you know, because I, and for, because I didn't want to go on the weekends and, you know, go to the bar. Like I would rather just say, Hey, let's go have a drink. Cause I still drink, you know, like let's go have a drink and, you know, hang out, but I'm not going to like, you know, let's go do shots at five, you know, five, <laughs> five crow or three crow and, you know, and stuff. And so, you know, like, uh, to me, um, it's been, a, it, I, I get that and I wish that I would have my, I feel like more people just shy away from you because then you just become too complicated. You know, like Christians are too complicated. Mm. I don't think it's that they become complicated. I think it's because you not doing certain things makes them convicted. feel convicted and guilty and they don't That's like right. feeling I, like I think, that. I think it's the opposite thing because conviction doesn't come from, conviction doesn't come when you feel like you're living in sin when you don't care about the Lord and you don't care about salvation. I think convict. Well, convi- they were convi- Christian. Guilt. Christian. They feel guilt. Well, and yeah. I don't think I don't think they feel guilt either because like most people like who are living in sin, like you don't care about conviction. You don't necessarily care about guilt. Conviction is from the Lord. Like when you feel convicted in the Spirit, it's because the Lord's already tugging in your heart. And you can make the argument that like there's a really good uh, poem uh, written in the 1600s called "The uh, Hounds of Hell." Um, but it was revised and talking about like how there's there's always like that the hounds in hell that are always like chasing and pursuing like it'd be like the circles of like hell and it was like a pretty like dark poem but there was a um evangelist who uh switched up and said that equal to the hounds of he- uh uh hell there's also like that the proverbial uh hounds of heaven like you need to realize that like the Lord is like pursuing and chasing like a relationship with his child. He'll never force like relationship on you, but like he seeks it, he wants it, he desires it. And a lot of people think that like they have to, they arrive at this spot, but like before, before even wanting, like people have to go, like want to have that relationship with the Lord for like it to actually happen. He doesn't force his way into your life. Like he'll show and manifest his way inside your life. I think there's a lot of like proof of that inside the word and a lot of small things that happen in your life that you look back and say, man, that was the Lord, even before you knew that it was the Lord. But I don't think conviction comes until you open yourself up to those like points of it. Cause up to that point, you're like, I'm glad I'm living in darkness. I'm glad I'm living in sin. Because so yeah, there's no conviction, but the Lord has given everyone a conscience and it's defilements of your conscience that actually makes you guilty before the Lord. Well, I think that that gets into like moral law where you start like talking about like, do people really have, uh, consciences or is that just built off of the civilization and the modern like culture that we have like because how, otherwise like if people really do have consciences and everyone does and it's equal and that's from the lord then how do how do serial killers exist how do people who can get away with things like that do they just conform so they're no longer like listening to that and i would argue that like 
it's like it's all rooted inside like the evil that's in the world that we brought into the the world but like I, I would say that like consciousness doesn't necessarily play a role inside the evilness that we have. Like we're just like inherently evil, but I don't think that like everyone has that inner voice to be able to listen to. I don't think that that exists. So I, I go back to the word and I say that like the word itself speaks about people having a conscience. So I base my standpoint off of that. Sorry, George. No, I was trying to uh, get her to give me it. What part of the word says that? And what? You're giving me a second. Uh, well, if you go to Corinthians, Paul is, even if you just look at like a uh, food of one Corinthians nine ten, where they're speaking about food offered to idols, and he says, for conscience sake, uh, don't eat, lest the conscience of the younger one be defiled. So I, I think that's saying and something different than everyone has a moral compass. Uh, no, like but if you want, life. we can Google it. I'm sorry that I can't give you the other verse now, but I mean. There's literally a verse that speaks about how um, those who have never heard the gospel, if they follow their conscience, then I want to be careful with preaching this, but if they follow the conscience that God has put in them and they've never heard the gospel, they will be judged on their conscience. So did they follow the conscience that was put in them? And so to answer your question about what about serial killers and stuff like that, I would say that if you constantly ignore your conscience, if you constantly over and over do the opposite of what's telling you, it becomes dead and dull yeah. to a point where you, you can't hear it anymore. Yeah. And, I, and I know that we got to go through the, the things, but I'd love yeah. to have a post-conversation yeah, about yeah. that and dig deeper into it. Most serial killers are actually psychopaths and they're missing the, uh, a lot of the nerve endings that um, kind of translate empathy and stuff as well, which is part of why they don't feel. When it's like... Well, again, we, we can have a deeper conversation about it later. <laughs> Rabbit trails, sorry. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> All right, to, so to sum up the new nature part, um, it's in Galatians 5.24, it says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So I would say that is also a very good barometer of what your intentions are um, when you're facing situations like what we just discussed, you know, the things that you're concerned about giving up or leaving behind, are you concerned about that because you are, you won't reach people or are you concerned about it because there's a piece of you still that wants those things. So as long as you have crucified the flesh itself and you know that your intentions are pure, feel free to reach out to those uh, who are still in the world I would say if you're still struggling in the flesh, like if you're coming from an alcoholic background, don't go out with your friend for a beer. Like even if it was in a calm setting, like you know what your triggers are, so don't do it. Like if someone watches, asks me to go watch like an ancient history movie, like I love that mm -hmm. stuff. But if it's going to be like 300, the second or third, I don't know how many they made. <laughs> But it's probably not a good idea for me because I'll watch it because like I really love that stuff. But then I'm going to be exposing myself to a lot of graphic images that I probably shouldn't be seeing. Um, and then Colossians 3, 9 to 10. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So you are renewed. You are refreshed. Everything from your past is in your past, but you have to put your spirit under subjection to the Holy Spirit 
so that you can get to a point where your soul and your emotions and your flesh are no longer leading you, but they're following your spirit, which is following the spirit of God. Are we all on board with that one? All right. Truth number seven, a new partner. Ecclesiastes says, two are better than one because they have a, a good reward for their labor. Um, then it goes on to speak about why marriage is wonderful and stuff, but singleness is wonderful too. Um, and the next verse, I don't think it quotes it here, but it speaks about how a, a threefold cord is not easily broken. And a lot of people refer to that third cord as God or the Holy Spirit being intertwined. Um, makes your union really, really strong. And so the wonderful thing about salvation is that God didn't leave us orphans and didn't expect us to just kind of do things on our own. Um, he left us the Holy Spirit. And I know I've been guilty of this myself, but sometimes I sit there going, I wish I could see Jesus and just like sit down and talk to him. Like how cool is it that the disciples were with him like every day? Like, they could just right now, like, Jesus, what about this? What do you think of that? What should I do here? Like, you know, but Jesus himself said, it's better that I go away so that the helper will come. And so if Jesus, who is God, is saying, it's better that I go away because something better is coming, then we need to have that view as well. We're not at a disadvantage now that Jesus is gone. In fact, we have a greater advantage because we have the Holy Spirit with us. Jesus could only be in one place at one time when he was on earth. The Holy Spirit is everywhere at the same time. So all of us have equal access. It's not like the disciples vying for Jesus' attention, everyone wanting their second of fame with him, and he was in human flesh, so he could only do so much at one time. We have the Holy Spirit, and all of us can have equal access at the same time, the same amount. All right. We will go more into the Holy Spirit next week and it's my favorite part and i'm really excited about it because the holy spirit is really awesome and he unfortunately is a very neglected part of the trinity and often if we really examine our lives we might find that we maybe treat him as the lowest in the ranks when he's equal with each of the trinity and the same focus and attention we place on God and the Father, we should also give to the Holy Spirit. We need to not neglect Him in our lives because He was put there for a purpose. All right, some of the things that the Holy Spirit does, He comforts us, and there's verse references there for you to look through. He encourages us, He empowers us, He lives in us, and He guides us. Um, my uh, pastor back home in South Africa used to say, uh, she she went she had a very painful like marriage. Um, her husband was addicted to drugs and gambling, and he used to cheat on her all the time. And uh, they eventually got divorced out of necessity because of the lifestyle he was living, and they had children, and he kept like bringing that back home. And so they divorced. But she prayed for twenty years for them to be reunited, and they eventually were, and they're now happy and they have a great marriage and he's in ministry and she's in ministry but during those 20 years she had she always had the intention of God is going to fix my marriage so she never sought out any type of relationship outside of that she wasn't interested in any other man she never dated she prayed for 20 years for her husband to come back and she said sometimes it got so lonely like 
and she says sometimes at her deepest darkest moments on her bed alone crying to god she would just cry out holy spirit please hug me i need a hug i need physical interaction and she would say that she would literally feel like a warm glow surround her and encompass her and she would feel like god was hugging her in that moment and she says that's those things that got her through those 20 years um he empowers us this is such an important part that we'll go more into again next week but there's certain things in our life sometimes that we just seem to like keep falling back on sins that we just can't get over um maybe emotional hurts or lies in our heads like you're useless you're pointless you'll never achieve anything and we just those thoughts keep coming back to us and keep depressing us and holding us down and the holy spirit is there to come and encourage and empower us to get over those things to gain victory over them he's not there to help you survive he's there to help you thrive and live a victorious life truth number eight a new covenant you have entered a new covenant. A covenant is an agreement signed and sealed in blood, and it is a guarantee. Can anyone maybe give me an example of a covenant that is still alive and active today? Like marriage. just like an earthly? Yeah, 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 an earthly yeah, covenant. marriage. Marriage, that's correct. Um, that's probably one of the only covenants that's still like a thing. Whereas back in the day, covenants were super common. Um, it was just ancient culture that you would make covenants with people. Um, in the Middle East, what they would do is, uh, let's say myself, Rachel, and Leah were different tribes. And we were each the leader of those tribes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Rachel was my enemy. Oh. <laughs> and I went... Leah and I came together and we decided to make a covenant. So what we would... <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> so what we would do is we would um, probably sacrifice some type of animal. And with the ashes from the fire, we would cut a slit in our wrists. Some people would let their blood mix. But what they would do is they would put the ash into the wound. And it would almost form like a type of tattoo situation and so they would always have that mark on their arm and it would be formed in a certain way that indicated her and i are in covenant so if rachel ever came to attack me i would go like this and she would see leah's symbol and she would know if she attacks me she's attacking leah and covenants were solid like it wasn't like today where you're like hey i'll see you for coffee next week and then you're like thank eh. you promise you know <laughs> A covenant was life or death. It was the type of situation where you broke a covenant, it, it, it was death. It meant death. Now we're at war. Leah, if, if you broke our covenant, we'd be at war. I'd be coming to fight against you. Like, even if you didn't do anything to me, just because you broke the covenant, it's war. We're at war. We're fighting. So covenants were super serious. Um, and today it's a bit hard for us to understand the significance of it because we only have one kind of covenant and honestly, most people don't even keep that one. Oh, it's called a mortgage. I got one tonight. She's cool. saying, right? She <laughs> but um, I think what's really beautiful is the way that God makes a covenant. 
So one of the ancient Hebrew customs when making a covenant was that they would take an animal and they would um, cut it in half and they would put the two pieces like that. And then they would walk in between the pieces. Some people say they walked in a figure eight to represent infinity, but that can't be proven. Um, it's a nice little tidbit, whatever. Um, <laughs> so they would walk around the pieces and they would say to each other, if ever I break the covenant I made with you, let what's be done to this animal, animal be done to me. So let me be cut in half and destroyed, killed. And there's a cool story in Genesis where God is making a covenant with Abraham. And we know that we're grafted into all the covenants and promises that the Jewish people had because we were grafted into the vine through Christ. But the beautiful thing about this covenant is that God uh, tells Abraham to bring a bunch of animals and to cut them up. Actually, let's read it and it'll be cooler. Um, does someone want to read that where it says what God says to Abraham? He says to you below that. Sure, I'll do it. Okay, thanks. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is uh, Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, the one shall not be your heir. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. He, and he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it for him his righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the uh, Chaldeans, I guess, uh, to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said, Bring me a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought, he brought all of these to him and cut them in two, and down in the middle and placed each piece. Uh, that's good for that. Uh, I skipped over two pages, so that totally didn't make sense for a second. <laughs> um, each piece opposite of the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will uh, will afflict them for 400 years. This is prophetic Oh, wait, wait, sorry. Just skip to the where it says verse 17. Uh, down that? a little bit. Okay, verse 17. Yeah. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch and passed between those pieces on the same day the Lord made the covenant with Abram. Awesome. So what's cool about this is God says, okay, I'm making you some promises and then we're going to make a covenant about these promises. So Abraham brings the sacrifices. Mm -hmm. He cuts up the animals that he needs to cut up. But before he can walk between the pieces and make the covenant with God, God makes him fall into a deep sleep. And then um, a flaming torch and a burning oven, which theologians go into all sorts of things about what that represents. But all you need to know is it was God. Those two things went between the pieces. So what was God doing? He was making the covenant with himself. Why did he do that? Because he's saying... He would never be broken. 
Yeah, in, in <laughs> essence, yeah. exactly what he's saying is he, he, he can't break it. He's making a covenant with himself. You can't control what somebody else does, but you control what you do. And yeah. If, he, if so, his God is, if God's word is like final, if it's the truth, God. then whatever he says has to come to pass. And because of that covenant, it's just like the, probably the biggest promise that the universe has ever seen. Yeah. So that's exactly what it is. It's God knows that man fails. And so God was so set on keeping this covenant that he's like, I'm going to make it with myself because I know I will never break this covenant. And so that way, when I made this promise to Abraham, it's solid forever. It can never be torn apart. And every covenant and promise God makes to us is the same way. If he makes us a promise, it's a covenant. We've entered into this new covenant through Christ. So when he promises us that we're saved, we're going to be with him for eternity, that he's renewed and sanctified our spirits. All the promises in scripture are ours and we can rest secure in that because God keeps his promises. He's faithful. (laughs) He's faithful to himself. I also love the fact that like in that he's telling like the two sides of the prophecy because like for because you might be getting to this pretty soon, but he's basically talking about, like, um, the entire, like, uh, Israelites that are going to come from this, which ultimately the, the years of suffrage end up being, like, the years spent in Egypt. Um, but the kind of amazing part about this is, yeah, it's like we can get caught up in the feelings of God makes, God makes promises that he can always keep, but also this is a terrifying moment for Abram because you look at it, and there's a really good statement that he says he wasn't able to bear any children up to this point. He was only able to have... One that totally wasn't from his actual like offspring. And then at this point, uh, God's like, go count the stars. It's how many descendants you're going to have. But then, and that's great news. And then on the flip side of it, he says, also, they're going to suffer for 400 years in a land that's not theirs. <laughs> so, By the like, way, that's a promise. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's why, that's why you look at it and we, yeah. we, you, can, you can get stuck on the fact that you're like, God is so good, which God is so good. But he's also so true to his word to be able to say that, like, I'm also letting you know it's coming. That It's like. There's great suffering in this world, but take heart for he has overcome the world. Yeah. That like those are the scriptures that you gotta live on. That it's like yeah. it's easy to pass over those things to be like, but also know there's like four hundred years of suffering. That it's not just like things come and like mm-hmm. promises are made, but know that like tough things happen. But he's like, take heart for I've yeah. overcome those things. Yeah. Just like after he says the bad stuff, he also says, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Like so, it's like bad stuff's gonna come, but. I'm there. It's okay. They won't get away with it. Which I'm glad that he threw in that cliff note because, like, I can only imagine Abram at that point to be like, <laughs> why'd you even tell me that? <laughs> I was better off not knowing. Yeah. <laughs> this was a blessing? <laughs> All right. Uh, I think we're done with that. Cool. All right. So, truth number nine, a new security. This one I'm going to go through pretty fast. Does someone want to read Jude 1, 24 to 25? It's right there. I will. Cool. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. All right. And then does someone want to read? Paul says in Romans 8, that part. I will. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jordan, will you read the next one? For he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So, a new security is basically that. It's saying you need to... I didn't type it. <laughs> I, I have an issue with um, lowercase gods and he's that refer to God and he's pointing out a typo. Um, <laughs> so I know a lot of people can deal with the fear and insecurity of, oh, I did something. Has God left me? Has he forsaken me? Um, and take heart in the promises that are here and, these are just a few. There's so many promises in the word where God says, once I've chosen you and I've got you, that's, it's kind of over for you. Like, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to chase you down. Like, once you've had my love, you're just going to have to deal with my love forever because I'm chasing you. Um, we all know that parable of, you know, uh, the shepherd leaves the 99 for the one. I've experienced in my life that it's not like I strayed from the flock once. It was like twice, three times, four times, sometimes like really high up a dangerous mountain that I could have fallen off of and died. Other times just kind of wandering around the sheep pen, but not really in it. No matter how far I've gone or how close, no matter how difficult the pathway that I've gone down on, he's always run off to me and gotten me back. Um, and that's something that you can rest in and feel secure in. When you wander away, he will draw you back. It's a promise that he makes to you. Um, and take heart in that and know that your salvation is secure. Like he's chosen you. He's called you. He won't let you fall. Um, and then the lost truth in you inheritance. Uh, will someone read 1 Corinthians 2? But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But uh, God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Oh, I thought it carried on. Thanks. <laughs> um, by virtue of the fact that we are heirs of God and joined heirs of Jesus Christ, we have received an inheritance that goes beyond our wildest imaginations and dreams. All who turn down an inheritance like this must be crazy. God gave the children of Israel a land for their inheritance, although many enemies tried to stop them from inheriting it. You too have a lot of enemies who tried to prevent us from possessing our inheritance. God gave the children of Israel a land flowing with milk and honey, but they had to possess it. They had several campaigns to the north, the center, and the south. They had to fight to possess their inheritance. God has given you an inheritance, but you have to fight the enemy by resisting him in the name of Jesus until you possess it. That's, that's pretty powerful, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sounds good. so, when it speaks about inheritance, there are both things that you are promised are yours here on earth and in eternity. Um, I sometimes like to sit and imagine heaven and how it will be and 
I know that some of the things I think might be kind of like far-fetched, but then I also think there is no possible way that anything I imagine could be better than heaven. So no matter how far-fetched what I'm thinking is, it's kind of not that far-fetched. And so I think about heaven and I think how there'll be new colors in heaven. Like imagine a new color in your head right now. Whatever you've thought of, you're just mixing colors. You haven't thought of anything new. Sorry to burst your bubble. But I see my color then. It's really special. <laughs> I'm sure it is, but it's not new. <laughs> and so I'm pretty sure in heaven there, there'll be new colors. There'll be new sounds. It'll just be beyond our wildest imaginations. And that's part of our inheritance. We have an eternal life with God in and, and you can argue whether it's a new heaven, new Jerusalem, up there, down here, whatever. But the point is we're with Jesus forever. And it's going to be beautiful and amazing. But a lot of believers, that's kind of all they hold on to is, well, when I die, I'll go to heaven and be with Jesus. And that's great. And that's important. But you're not meant to live your whole life waiting for that day. And just like, it's kind of like the week. You know how it is when you're waiting for the weekend? So every day you're just like, oh, I just have to make it to Friday night. That's not how life is supposed to be in your spiritual life. You're not supposed to be going, oh, I can't wait till I die and just see Jesus. Although I'll admit I've had moments like that. <laughs> but you're supposed to live life in such a way that you're claiming your inheritance now. The promises that the Father has made, you need to claim now. And this is a very good point that they made here. There is an enemy who is trying to stop you from getting that inheritance. He will try to stop you from gaining your eternal inheritance, but he will also try to stop you from gaining the inheritances that were given to you on this earth. Um, there's a verse, I think it's in Ecclesiastes. If it's not there, it's probably in Proverbs that it says something like, um, there is, uh, it must be Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. Um, there's also a saying that goes, the end is known from the beginning. And I think those kind of tie together. If you read the Bible in its entirety, you'll notice the same story, the same theme that happens over and over and over in different cycles but with and different people, but it's the same thing that keeps happening over and over. Um, and so everything from the past we can use as a picture of the future. And um, a lot of theologians will tell you that a lot of the physical things in the Bible are portraying spiritual things that we can't see. And so this analogy of God promising the Israelites, you can have Israel. It's amazing. Um, for those of you who look at Israel today, maybe you're like, I don't get it. Um, I don't know what it looked like back then, but I'm pretty sure it was different. Because I know that the Bible says when Joshua and Caleb went to spy out the land, they brought back like grapes and fruit with them that were so heavy they had to carry it on like a stick. So pole on my shoulder, pole on her shoulder, and the grapes are hanging. Like we can't carry it. Like we're like, the grapes are, they're big. It's heavy, <laughs> right? So, and we knew that the, the people in that land were giants, which would make sense why the food was big, right? Everything was really, really big. Um, and so this was a crazy, amazing place to like live. I mean, one grape is like your meal, right? Mm -hmm. So and that's where we became obese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Grapes are healthy. There must be so much sugar in those grapes. <laughs> But, but what happened when um, Caleb and Joshua came back? Does anyone remember that part of the story? Oh, the, the other people with them were doubters, right? Was that yeah, yeah, the other nine of them, right? And yeah. Caleb was the only one that said that they should go and attack. Yeah, the young Caleb kids. and Joshua, yeah. Mm -hmm. All the rest of them were like, no. And not, not just the other spies. The whole of Israel was just like, nope, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to do that. that they're, they're scary giants there. Mm -hmm. Said 40 more, <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that true of what we do? Like, God has given us promises, He's He said, This is yours, take it. Mm -hmm. And we go, I don't know, getting there is pretty scary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, there's some things stopping me that if I have to walk through them, do them, give them up, I wow, I, I don't know, maybe the milk and honey isn't that great after all. Maybe I'll just kind of stay here in the desert. And that's where a lot of Christians stay. They stay in the wilderness their whole lives. It's also the ability to be able to say where you're willing to sacrifice for it. Because even Abram, when he became Abraham, um, the father of nations, like he finally received the promise that God had been promising him, promising him, promising him. Took forever to be able to get. And you don't really think about like how long 40 years actually is for some of those. And then by the time that he finally got the promise, God said, now sacrifice the promise. <laughs> so it's like by the time that you finally got the thing that you believed for, for like decades of your life to be able to say now give that thing up just to be able to test the faith of that but again it goes back to it's so easy to think about the positives of like the 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 pros and pros and pros like this isn't like this isn't like amway you don't like get sold on the the thought of being christians by saying do you like nice cars do you like being your own boss it's like that's not what christianity does i think we're missing one of the greatest parts about it that like is the the sorrow that comes in this world but take heart for he's overcome the world it's the fact that like bad things are going to continue to happen to great people it doesn't it, like we don't preach prosperity gospel that's not what god intended he didn't say that like he came to be able to make you rich he didn't come to be able to make you famous he didn't come to be able to do all these things it's like most of the disciples led to and this is like the real side of it that like you start looking at it and say like what did it actually mean to be a disciple of christ we're like you get a whole other levels of being like those people sacrificed their lives and like lived on the road uh, road you think about the the rich man that was passing jesus and he said i lived my entire life right i haven't sinned i haven't lied i haven't cheated on my spouse i've done everything right what do i need to be able to do to enter the gates of heaven and god said sell well jesus said sell everything that you have and follow me mm -hmm. and he wasn't able to do it mm -hmm. and like you look at so many things and like it's easy to look at this list and say like oh great look at the inherent the inheritance i get the promises of god i get the power of god i get the prince of god no you also get the sorrow and the burden of christ you get you get the conviction for those that you see walking through the streets to be able to say that they're living a life of sorrow you get the ability to be able to walk through um, like the church or walk through the street and be able to notice and get that conviction tugging on your heart saying that person's going through depression right now. What are you going to do? And I think that a lot of the church like misses those key aspects of it to be like Christianity isn't always like this like beautiful thing that like you always look at. There's a lot of like really tough pieces to it. But that's also like when you look at like the camaraderie that comes with like the body of Christ. And you start looking at the whole picture of that and you start saying there is this helper to be able to come in. And that's why you need the helper. It's not to be able to say that, like, I want to make the next smart advancement in my career. It's like, yes, God wants you to be prosperous, but he wants you to be prosperous so you can give. Yes, God wants you to be healthy, but he wants you to be healthy so that you can go and be the hands and feet for those who can. Mm -hmm. Like, and when you start thinking about things like that, you're like, I have a whole new grasp on, like, what this is. So, like, it's, 
it's really good, I think, to see stuff like this, but I also think that, like, you gotta talk about, like, the hard stuff. It's, it'd be tough to be able to tell, Anyone like, who knows me knows that I talk about the hard yeah, yeah. stuff way yeah, yeah. more than I talk about the nice, fluffy stuff. And it's good that you made those points. Um, I will never preach to anyone that life is just about you getting everything that you want all the time and it's going to be easy because that's a lie from the devil. But what I will tell you is, yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's pain. And yes, Jesus overcame. But he also said, you are more than conquerors in Christ. And so are bad things going to happen? Yes. But... The difference between a defeated Christian and a victorious Christian is the attitude they have when those bad things come. Are you going to rejoice in suffering like the disciples did? Or are you going to be defeated like the Israelites in the wilderness and see, just cry and moan and complain? Or you see Paul dancing when he's jailed and like mm -hmm. everything. And also jail wasn't like the jail that we have now. They weren't serving these guys. Like, like watching and even like They weren't serving these guys even what we would consider crappy jail food. Like, they didn't have, like, an hour out in the courtyard, like, every single day. These were, like, dungeons, and, like, he's dancing in, in jail that ends up tearing down the walls. And you see stuff like that to be like, oh, well, that's that's what actual, like, sorrow is. That's what, like, tough mm -hmm. situations are, and, like, that's the outcome. Like, you worship, you press through, like, mm -hmm. you be able to do it. And it doesn't mean that, like, you always feel like that. You look at other times that, like, even the disciples post-Jesus, post-seeing, like, like, when... Sorry, I get excited about this. But, like, Jesus had already died. They'd already seen him raised uh, raise from the dead. And they still asked to be able to see his palms, to be able to make sure there was holes in his hands, to make sure it was really him. They'd already seen all these miracles. They'd already seen everything else. And still they doubted. Mm -hmm. Still they were like, show us this. Like, prove that it's you. Mm -hmm. So, like, in our, in our faith, like, when we deal with hard situations, like, how much more? And, I mean, he says it. Like, and you hit on it a little bit ago. How much more is it for us who haven't seen to yet still believe? But, like, again, like, the helper. Exactly. That's the key point is the helper. The disciples abandoned Jesus, kind of reconciled with him when he rose again. But what happened when he ascended? They kind of like back into their little hole in the upper room praying. I mean, they weren't well, they out there all, preaching well, the gospel. They were there praying and worshiping, but they weren't doing what fills up most of the New Testament. But then what happened? The Holy Spirit fell, boom, everything changed. Now they were out there preaching the gospel, healing the sick, loving the unloved. And so the, the most important part is the helper. God came in spirit to fill each of us as believers, to empower us in a way that was never possible before. The whole Bible is filled with stories of people who loved God, who wanted to serve him, but ultimately their flesh is what made them fail over and over again. The children, the Israelites, what happened? Something would go bad. They'd ask for forgiveness. They'd worship God. Everything would go great. They'd gain the promises and then they'd fall again. And then they would rise again and then they would fall again. And this would go over and over and over. But God planned it from the beginning to show us one thing. You can't do it. You were never meant to do it. You are flesh. But when my spirit enters in you, then you are empowered to overcome. Then you can do what no one could do before you because they were always dependent on the flesh. Not to say that God judged those people and said, well, look, you don't have the spirit, so you're failing. And oh, well, there's points for you. But it was a picture to show us what was coming, why we needed the power of God to help us overcome in our lives. And so 
we might not be living with Jesus in the flesh. We might not be having a, a huge pillar of smoke and fire in front of us to lead us. And those things are amazing. And I hope in heaven God shows us a movie so we can all see what it really looked like. Because I think it's really cool. But we have something so special. Something that Jesus said, it's better that I go that you can have this. We have God in us. All the time before, God was present with believers. God encountered believers. God appeared to believers. But only on the day of Pentecost did God come and live in believers. And that's the promises that we have today. And that's why you need to be here next week. This is the big finale. Wow. <laughs> All right. I think we finished early, which is a freaking miracle. I'm sorry. That never happens with me. Um, ask Elizabeth. She's been in 10,000 Bible studies with me.